Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Oh, this is the worst looking hat I ever saw. Well, you buy a hat like this, I'll bet you get a free bowl of soup, huh? Oh, it looks good on you, though. Conversations about collaboration, episode 29. Leo Batari joins me for a multifaceted discussion on management, collaboration, and communication. He's the author of three books, most recently, Peer Innovation, What Peer Advisory Groups Can Teach Us About Building High-Performing Teams. We talk about servant leadership, golf, basketball, and organizational learning. Leo, where does this pod find you? Carlsbad, California. Yeah, you guys doing okay? We are. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, they they say it never rains in Southern California. Well, you know, here we are today. It's a little bit of rain today, but um, I'm sure it'll clear up soon. We're entering that season uh, here where it's kind of this May, gray, June gloom is kind of how they refer to it. And uh, so every day kind of begins with this um, kind of morning fog, if you will, and sometimes stays more than the morning. But, uh, you know, still not a bad place in the country to live. Hmm. A couple of weeks ago, you had me on your podcast to talk about my book, and now I'm going to turn the tables. Now I'm the one asking the questions, baby. All right. I like it. Talk to me a little bit about the work that you do, specifically around executives and peer groups. Um, talk to me about, just for the people who haven't heard of, of you and your company, uh, at a high level, what do you do and how does it relate to the topic of this pod collaboration? Yeah, so basically, uh, a number of years ago, I worked for Vistage, and I was there for about six and a half years. I headed up corporate communications there. Um, And during that time, I actually led a brand refresh for the company. And I would ask executives and CEOs, how do you learn? How do you grow? How do you bring new thinking into your companies? And they would tell me things like, well, I have a coach. I hire consultants. We go to events and conferences. I maybe go to executive development programs in Harvard and Stanford. I read books, you know, whatever. But nobody was talking about being part of a peer advisory group. And of course, this is what Vistage did, and they've been doing it since 1957, and they're unbelievably effective for people who participate, yet so few of them do. So after the brand refresh was done, I basically went to the board of directors and said, you guys are trying to sell a Mercedes to someone who doesn't even know what a car is. I said, so let's kind of figure this out in terms of not just talking, looking at maybe writing a hardcover brochure about Vistage and why we're so great. But let's step back and look at this entire category. So we looked at Vistage, YPO, EO, TAB, another number of organizations, you know, here in the U.S. and around the world and talk about what is it that makes them tick? Why are they so effective? And put a narrative together. And basically, since that time, after that book, I've conducted about 200 workshops now with CEO peer groups. And from that, have advanced that content and basically been able to identify, here's what peer advisory groups do so well that make them effective. And by the way, what they do so well, you can actually do with teams in your organization. And that's really the subject of the latest book, Peer Innovation. Tell me a little bit about that narrative. Um, Was it difficult? Because this has been around for a while, right? It has. um, But again, when you, you step back and you start looking at the entire category and not just Vistage, 
So you look at all these different groups. I looked at Bill George's uh, work, for example, with uh, True North Groups. He co-authored a book with Doug Baker a number of years ago and just looked at all the dynamics around these groups and how and why they work. Not only do I think there was a learning experience for Vistage to get a sense of what was really going on out there in addition to what they did, but it did help kind of crack the code with regard to what makes for a really high performing group. What does that look like? And um, I think once we were able to let the information come to us in that regard, I think that made the book really write itself. So spill some of the beans, what makes for a high performing group? I would say so, and this applies to high performing teams too. One of the things we found with high performing groups and with any metric, right? doesn't matter if you looked at their net promoter score of group members or the growth of the companies, the tenure of the members, anytime you saw a group that was really firing in all cylinders, it was usually because they had a robust learning achieving cycle. And we basically define that cycle as um, learning, sharing, applying, achieving. What we know is we learn better when we learn together. There's really no doubt about that. There's so much in social learning theory that talks to us about it. Josh Burson actually has a study that was done in 2019 where he talks about the fact that when we review something one time, we're likely to remember 28% of it for roughly 24 to 48 hours, and then it goes down from there. (laughs) If we review it a second time, the number goes to 46%. If we actually engage others in conversation and share experiences and have dialogue about this, truly kind of grapple with this stuff a bit, the number goes to 69%. Groups are really good at helping each other kind of embed and understand learning more deeply. The better part, however, is they're not a book club, right? They're not just for knowledge acquisition. What they actually also do is help give one another the courage and the encouragement to act on that learning. And once they apply it, even if there's some trial and error when it comes to achieving positive results, it's it's really powerful. And this is something they want to repeat. You know, and when we think about great teams, think about great teams in sports who are the ones who are either winning championships or they're always part of the conversation. Those teams don't really, if you think about it, regard winning the championship as the goal. They actually see it as the reward for a commitment to getting better every single day. Their goal, every time they come into practice, every time, whether as individuals or as a team, how do we how do we get better than we were yesterday? And when you adopt that mindset, when you adopt that kind of work ethic, that is always going to put you in a position where you can win championships. And uh, companies that I've seen um, really in many respects operate um, the same way, the really good ones. Yeah, without breaking any confidences, can you maybe tell me a a story or an example of one that did really well when they embraced this framework that I obviously need to do more research on? Yeah. Um, So the learning achieving cycle, of course, I'll I'll briefly just suggest doesn't happen by throwing a bunch of people in a room and hoping for the best. Right. It involves having the right people. They have to enjoy what Google described as being critical to high performing teams as um, psychological safety. They've got to be productive. They have an accountability to one another, not just to the boss or the KPIs, but truly to one another, that their currency personally and professionally exists among the team members. And finally, that they have a leader. In many respects, we saw the leaders who were servant leaders who were there to serve the team uh, much more than the other way around. Um, were successful. And they, of course, as leader also served as the steward of the other four factors, right? They're always making sure they're watching for the right people, psychological safety, productivity, and accountability, because they recognize that these things aren't uh, milestones that you check off the box. These are ongoing, fluid things that always have to be uh, dealt with. Um, But I worked with a um, company out of Toronto that, um, you know, was basically a cross-functional work team that they really wanted to get to be, they felt like they had A players 
And what they were really looking for was to make them an A team. And there were two things that were actually came into that. One of them was we had very intentional conversations about each of those five factors. And from that emerged from the team, things that they wanted to own, things that they believed were areas of improvement. Uh, Secondly, um, it was really interesting that while the CEO and the CFO and everyone was all excited about being a half billion dollar or a billion dollar company, what was really became evident quickly was that for the employees, ah, that was like, all right, so we're hitting a number or is it an ego play or is it something like that? And, but yet for the employees, what they loved, they loved what they made. And they thought, wow, if we, if someone makes the case that if we get larger and we can put the product that we love so much into the hands of more people that could change their lives, I'm in on that one. So in many respects here, there were some things that, that kind of the mechanics of those five factors that we talk about, they saw areas of improvement. But at the same time, I think one of the big things um, was recognizing that there was a message, there was a purpose, there was a reason for them to come in every day and do what they do and do what they love. And once we got to that, that created a whole different dynamic around the team members themselves. I'm fascinated by this distinction between A players versus an A team. And since you were talking about sports later, I immediately went to (laughs) basketball because I'm a fan. And I think about the uh, Lakers when they added Carl Malone, Gary Payton, and they had Shaq and Kobe. And on paper, even though a couple of those players are past their prime, talking about four or five Hall of Famers in the starting lineup, yet they lost that year, um, memory serves me correctly, to the Detroit Pistons, who had certainly good players, but had a better team. Um, I don't know if a lot of people necessarily make that distinction, right? How you can have really solid people, but they don't cohere. Am I wrong on that? No, I think think you're absolutely right. I mean, there are some teams have really the ability to create synergies, right? We talk about, I mean, the reason... Project Aristotle was named what it was from Google, but it was the idea of the quote of creating something larger, right, um, than the sum of the parts. And I think there are teams that are capable of doing that. It happens um, in teams, like when you talked about, you know, in basketball, my favorite team, of course, is the 86 Boston Celtics. I, you know, um, I'm from Boston and I would put that team up against anybody in terms of, and a lot of it had to do with the way they played. I mean, I'd put obviously the certain Laker teams, maybe the 87 Laker team or whatever, right? That also, um, you know, it was showtime, but, and, but the way they, the way they passed the ball, the way they worked together, the way they got everyone involved, the way they did everything you're supposed to do beyond scoring. And they played great defense. They had rebounds. They, you know, you tick down the list. And when everyone recognizes everything that's important to be successful in a game versus their own individual stats, you know, it makes all the difference. And that's kind of what you're referring to, I think, with this idea that, you know, we might think, well, we've got these five best players and somehow why are we losing, you know? Hmm. You also mentioned before the difference between a process and an outcome, right? So once a team coheres, once a team achieves a certain level of performance, um, it may not necessarily stick, right? Unless to your point, it's imbued in the culture, right? Talk to me a little bit more about that distinction between a process and an outcome. Yeah, it's going to be about the work. And, And I think sometimes about it, the simple analogy I would make is that if you're playing poker, and you're all about winning money and you're spending a good deal of your time just counting your poker chips, you're probably going to get your ass kicked in that game because you're not focused on what it takes to actually create more poker chips, right? <laughs> so you, you've got to be involved in the game. You've got to be involved in 
you know, every detail and every aspect of whatever process it is, whether you're um, playing poker or trying to, you know, engage in a marketing or sales plan, whatever that may happen to look like. And, you know, it is very much, I, I tell a story um, also about uh, taking my daughters up to a mountain and um, they were in their early teens and they wanted to climb a peak in Colorado. And of course, they're thinking about that goal, right? They're constantly thinking about, hey, we're going to get to the top of that peak. We're going to get to, you know, see all the incredible vistas around that and all. And that's great until you actually get up on the mountain and you realize this is hard. <laughs> and by the way, the more that you focus, if you've ever done this, you know that you can climb a mountain and you'll look at the peak, you'll climb for 20 minutes, and then you look at the peak again, and it looks no closer than it did 20 minutes ago. And it's really, in addition to the physical thing that you're going through, it's emotionally exhausting when that happens. So we literally got to a point where they were complaining and they're looking at their faces and they're like, dad, we're, we're pretty much ready to <laughs> pack it in. The view looks good from here, right? So the, what we ended up doing was I said, tell you what, let's, let's, think of, let's look at where we are. And it was like this large bush like coming out of the rocks in this weird way. And so let's climb for another 10 more minutes and see, see what you think. And they're like, fine, okay. They're going to give me my 10 minutes. And so we go to 10 minutes, 10 minutes on the dot to look at me. All right, gave you the 10 minutes, ready. And they said, look, that peak is no closer than it was when we left 10 minutes ago. I said, look behind you. And that little bush was like a dot in the landscape. And they're like, holy smoke, we can't believe how what progress we made. That is unbelievable. And now all of a sudden, it gave them that little burst of energy. Let's climb for another 10 more minutes. Let's climb whatever. Next thing you know, one foot in front of the other, you get to the top of the mountain. This idea of keeping your eye on the prize is not always the best advice when it comes to whether you're in a company, you're climbing a mountain, or you're doing whatever. You know, this constant focus on that long-term goal, most of us don't have either you know, the, the stomach, the will, the physical, mental, whatever <laughs> ability to sustain everything through that, unless we are recognizing our victories and celebrating those things along the way and recognizing that it takes one foot in front of the other. We start thinking about the championship in April and, and, the, and the World Series is in October. Good luck. You know what I mean? You, you better have something that is going to sustain your ability to go out and play 162 game season in baseball, for example, and actually even make the playoffs. Right. So that's kind of what I'm talking about in terms of, of focus. And I think a love of the process, love of the work. And if you do those things well and do those things right, you can put yourself in a position to be incredibly successful. It reminds me a bit of a story <clears throat> that I saw, I think it was on HBO Real Sports, but it might've been Netflix. It all kind of melds together. But there were a couple of um, men who were trying to get to, um, I don't know, cr cross Antarctica. And obviously very cold. They couldn't bring that much material. I don't know if you've heard of the story, but um, at some point um, uh, the, the, the guy got injured and he couldn't walk. So he had to crawl and it was still, he was basically in the middle of nowhere by himself in incredibly cold temperatures. And to get through it, and I think he wound up losing some toes because of the frostbite, but mm. he broke things up into these manageable goals, right? I'm not going to go from here to the end, which is 30 miles in one day when I'm crawling and it's you know minus 60 degrees or whatever the hell it was, uh, but I'm going to get to that tree, right? And by doing that, uh, again, it's a credible story, but he was able to do it. Uh, whereas if he had said, I'm going to try to get to, use your analogy, the World Series, well, you can't do that in April. You know, the other factor about that, too, it's the difference between declaring victory and suffering repeated failures. Hmm. So and this is runners do this all the time. If they have to walk and run, 
you know, you can, you can decide I'm going to run as far as I can until I can't do it anymore. Then I'm going to stop and I'm going to walk for a while. And then I'm going to do that again and repeat that process. Well, every time you stop, it's because you can't do it anymore. And you're feeling that sense of being defeated. Um, if, however, to your point, you say, I'm going to run to that stop sign. I'm going to run to that tree and whatever. And you get there and declare victory. Then you're going to walk, you pick your next mark and do that. That changes everything psychologically as far as that. So I, I totally get you know, that story mine is, of course, much milder version of what you've suggested in Antarctica, but it's the same principle. You know? <laughs> yeah, or even golf. I, I know you're an avid golfer. I remember when I started, I couldn't break 140 because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I said, all right, I'd, I'd like to break 130. And eventually you shave 10 strokes off and every 10 strokes gets harder. But I remember <laughs> the first time I broke 100, the first time I broke 90, uh, you know, first time I had a birdie, you know, the first time I had whatever, a, a, a nine under 40. Um, there's no way I would have ever got to that point if I started at 140 and said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to break 80, right? It's just not feasible. Yeah. You know, um, I remember someone that was a podcast guest of mine, and I wish I could remember who it was, who had this great quote. You talked about expectations of the thieves of joy, you know, Ooh. and <laughs> it's a great one. <laughs> and when you think about golf in particular, this is where I watch people all the time. They'll jump out of their car, you know, they get to the time. They don't, they don't warm up. They don't hit balls. They don't do anything. And they come off the first tee. They they hit it off God knows where, you know, or they dribble it off the tee or whatever. And then they're all angry, you know. The best players in the world, when you watch them any weekend on the PGA Tour, they hit more balls in a, in a year than you'll ever hit in a lifetime. And they're spraying it all over the place. The interesting thing, though, and I think what's the great metaphor about golf is your, you know, you have to be in the moment. Every shot is its own thing. And, and whether you hit a good shot, bad shot or whatever, it doesn't inform what's going to happen on the next shot. It is a real, you know, so you can start off playing golf to your point. You're going to, all right, I want to get to, you know, I want to shoot an even par around. Well, you better start by hitting a good drive, hitting a good second shot, getting on the green, parring the first hole and repeating that process is the only way you're going to get there. And, you know, cause you'll put yourself in a hole in a hurry, you know, no pun intended. If, uh, <laughs> if you don't take that approach. That reminds me of oh, five or six years ago, there's a golfer on the PGA tour called Kevin Na sure. and I'm watching and he was in the woods and he was trying to hit it out and he couldn't. And I think he was taking his no joke 15th shot and he, he hits it well and it's going towards the green finally. And he's, you know, he, you just tell he's locked in the moment with get there. He wasn't thinking about the previous 14, right? right. Which most people would do, but no, to, to your point, he is in the moment. And I think there's a, a metaphor uh, that applies to a bunch of different sports, but also in the business world. No, I, I agree. And um, yeah, and I think sometimes too, in fact, I'm, I'm working on this piece right now, just talking about, you know, oftentimes we, we think everything's going to move so quickly and we've got to get these big results and we've got to grow and we've got to do all this stuff and, and we will. But, you know, if you're kind of looking at the process and putting one foot in front of the other, but there's something to be said for a little bit of patience. There's something to be said for sometimes uh, slower is faster. Um, and, you know, just taking a breath sometimes and recognizing, you know, I don't know about you, but I've worked in places where someone will come up with this big elaborate plan. They put it into place. And if they don't get ROI on it in two days, they're like, oh, freaking out. Right. And they're now they're changing things and they're trying and it's like, all right, you know what, let, let this thing do it, do its thing first before you figure out and you start tinkering with something when you don't even know what the problem is yet. And so, um, yeah. 
Yeah, when I think about, say the, about that, but when I think about the companies that have handled the <clears throat> pandemic well and have changed the way that they work, you know, some had a head start, right? When I think about Basecamp or, or Automatic, sure. the company behind WordPress or Slack, right? This was in their DNA, and I can see how some people would immediately say, "Well, you know, we can't get there because we don't have that institutional muscle memory." But I try to explain to them that this took time, right? Google couldn't do the things that it can do today when it started back in 98, right? Ditto for Netflix and Amazon and all these others. So uh, a little patience is probably a good thing, not only on the golf course, but in the business world. You know, I remind people too, when they start complaining about, well, I'm sick of Zoom, I'm sick of this, I'm sick of that. And I, I remind them that in the 2008 financial crisis, had that been a pandemic, not a, cri- not a financial crisis, there was no Slack, there was no Zoom, Microsoft Teams didn't exist. Good luck with that. Right. So we're actually really fortunate. And if yes. we kind of operate once in a while from a place of gratitude in terms of figuring out what we do have to work with and how best to, uh, you know, extract as much value possible from that instead of complaining about it, um, then that can be helpful also. And I think for, particularly for leaders, right, because when the leaders start complaining about it, everybody's complaining about it, you know. And so I, I think we're rather fortunate uh, that we've gone through this pandemic in so many ways as well as a lot of people have. I also think it's taught a lot of leaders that when you start a meeting, maybe asking people how they're doing versus just what they're doing um, has been something that has helped people kind of tap into their shared humanity a little bit more and see one another as actually fellow human beings and not just, you know, fellow coworkers. And so um, that there have been, as, as tragic as it's been for so many people and so many families, um, certainly, um, you know, I, I think, All I remember is shelter in place, living in Southern California and all our adult children saying, hey, there's a good place to stay. We had people here for 10 weeks working out of every room in the house. However, every night we would sit down to dinner and, you know, with no phones, no TV, you know, everybody sitting around the table just having like real conversation. I mean, that I I couldn't have imagined circumstances that would have allowed that to happen for that extended period of time. Yet it was I regarded as such a gift for our family. Couldn't agree more. I'll get you out of here on this. What book are you currently reading? I am reading a book that I actually just got uh, yesterday from a former podcast guest, and it's called I Love It Here from Clint Pulver. And um, so he talks a lot about the difference between managers and mentors and a bit about the dynamics of things in the workplace that will that'll be the difference between people who are constantly looking for another job to, to people that just love it here and, and don't want to leave and, and want to be a positive contributor to the culture. So there's a lot in it about teams. Um, I love to, you know, read as much as I can and, and learn from others in addition to just producing all my own content all the time. I think it's obviously really critical for all of us to stay sharp. So I'm really looking forward to diving into his book over the next few days and, and looking forward to getting yours, by the way, that I know is on the way. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited for you to read it. Leo, thanks for joining me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, My pleasure. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.
Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.